You're listening to the Tri-State Community Church Podcast, a ministry of the Associate Reformed Presbyterian Church located in the greater Pittsburgh metropolitan area. For more information, including service times, please visit us at facebook.com forward slash Tri-State Reformed Church. Well, I invite you to uh, return to Genesis to chapter 42, chapter 42. We'll just take the whole chapter. Genesis 42, verse 1. When Jacob learned that there was grain for sale in Egypt, he said to his sons, why do you look at one another? And he said, behold, I've heard that there's grain for sale in Egypt. Go down and buy grain for us there, that we may live and not die. So ten of Joseph's brothers went down to buy grain in Egypt. But Jacob did not send Benjamin, Joseph's brother, with his brothers, for he feared that harm might happen to him. Thus the sons of Israel came to buy among the others who came, for the famine was in the land of Canaan. Now Joseph was governor over the land. He was the one who sold to all of the people of the land, and Joseph's brothers came and bowed themselves before him with their faces to the ground. Joseph saw his brothers and recognized them, but he treated them like strangers and spoke roughly to them. Where do you come from? He said. They said, from the land of Canaan and to buy food. And Joseph recognized his brothers, but they did not recognize him. And Joseph remembered the dreams that he had dreamed of them. And he said to them, you're spies. You've come to see the nakedness of the land. And they said to him, no, 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 my Lord, your servants have come to buy food. We're all sons of one man. We're honest men. Your servants have never been spies. He said to them, no, it is the nakedness of the land that you've come to see. And they said, we, your servants, are 12 brothers, the sons of one man in the land of Canaan. And behold, the youngest is this day with our father, and one is no more. But Joseph said to them, it is as I said to you, you are spies. By this you shall be tested. By the life of Pharaoh you shall not go from this place unless your youngest brother comes here. Send one of you and let him bring your brother. And while you remain confined that your words may be tested whether there is truth in you or else by the life of Pharaoh, surely you are spies. And he put them all together in custody for three days. On the third day, Joseph said to them, do this and you will live for I fear God. If you are honest men, let one of your brothers remain confined where you are in custody and let the rest go and carry grain for the famine of your households. And bring your youngest brother to me, so your words will be verified, and you shall not die. And they did so. Then they said to one another, In truth, we are guilty concerning our brother, and that we saw the distress of his soul when he begged us, and we did not listen. That is why this distress has come upon us. And Reuben answered them, Did I not tell you not to sin against the boy? But you did not listen. So now there comes a reckoning for his blood. And they did not know that Joseph understood them, for there was an interpreter between them. Then he turned away from them and wept, and he returned to them and spoke to them, and he took Simeon from them and bound him before their eyes. And Joseph gave orders to fill their bags with grain and to replace every man's money in his sack and to give them provisions for the journey. This was done for them. Then they loaded their donkeys with their grain and departed, and as one of them opened his sack to give his donkey fodder at the lodging place, he saw his money in the mouth of his sack. And he said to his brothers, My money has been put back. Here it is in the mouth of my sack. And at this their hearts failed them, and they 
turned trembling to one another, saying, What is this that God has done to us? And when they came to Jacob, their father, in the land of Canaan, they told him all that had happened to them, saying, The man, the Lord of the land, spoke roughly to us and took us to be spies of the land. But we said to him, We're honest men. We have never been spies. We're twelve brothers, sons of our father. One is no more, and the youngest is this day with our father in the land of Canaan. Then the man, the Lord of the land, said to us, By this I shall know that you are honest men. Leave one of your brothers with me and take grain for the famine of your households and go your way. Bring your youngest brother to me. Then I shall know that you are not spies but honest men, and I will deliver your brother to you, and you shall trade in the land. And as they emptied their sacks, behold, every man's bundle of money was in his sack. And when they, when they and their father saw their bundles of money, they were afraid. Jacob, their father, said to them, You have bereaved me of my children. Joseph is no more, and Simeon is no more, and now you would take Benjamin. All this has come against me. Then Reuben said to his father, Kill my two sons if I do not bring him back to you. Put him in my hands, and I will bring him back to you. But he said, My son shall not go down with you, for his brother is dead, and he is the only one left. If harm should happen to him, on the journey that you are to make, you would bring down my gray hairs with sorrow to Sheol. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this narrative, which is part of your holy and sacred word. We thank you, Father, that you have given us these narratives that we may learn, that we may be uh, equipped for every good work, for all of Scripture is Theonoustos, God-breathed, it's for our reproof, for our correction, and for training in righteousness. So, Father, we pray that you would be pleased, O Lord, to train us and equip us, O Father, and teach us the spiritual truths, Father, you have here for us this morning. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. There's a bit of review, real quick. Uh, last time we saw Joseph, uh, he was uh, exalted. Uh, Pharaoh was, in fact, our, our scripture memory verse from last week. Uh, Pharaoh says to Joseph, See, I've set you over all the land of Egypt. Now, of course, we recognize that behind Pharaoh setting Joseph over all the land of Egypt is the Lord setting Joseph, and that's why I keep thinking of Psalm 2.6. As for me, I've set my king on my holy hill. Uh, and, and we saw how many, in how many ways Joseph actually is, is really, uh, uh, we, we can make all these comparisons between Joseph and Jesus, can't we? And just over and over again, we see all of these comparisons. And uh, furthermore, I mean, Joseph has been exalted by Pharaoh because Joseph interpreted his dreams, Right? There will be seven years of good and plenty, uh, but following it will be seven years of famine, and the famine will be so severe that it'll be, you'll, you'll forget the good times. You'll forget the prosperity because uh, the famine is going to be so severe. And, of course, we see in our text that the famine has worked its way into the land of Canaan. We come to verse 1 here, and uh, we learn that when Jacob learned that there was grain for sale in Egypt, he said to his sons, why do you look at one another? In verse 1 of 42, and I, I don't know if it's just orneriness or whatever, but when you, 
when you read this for the first time, I kind of giggle to myself and think, you know, on the surface of this, this might look like one of those old episodes of the Dukes of Hazard. You know, I don't know how many of you have ever seen any of that. I'll look at your stairs. That'll tell me a lot. I see some of you. I'll see. Yeah, okay. Where you had old Boss Hog, you know, and he had his two deputies, uh, uh, Roscoe and Enos. And, and they're always looking at each other. They didn't know what to do. And he tells them what they do and like bumbling fools. They were really funny. I mean, okay, enough about the Dukes of Hazzard. Um, on the surface, it can kind of look that way, but that's really not what's going on. That's not what's going on here. Um, not at all. These men know that there is grain in Egypt. They know there's grain in Egypt. Why aren't they acting on it? Because it's Egypt. What's so bad about Egypt? We don't talk about Egypt. Why? Because that's the last time we saw our brother. He was being carried to Egypt. That's what's going on. And here, Jacob says to them, listen, there's grain for sale in Egypt. What are you guys looking at each other for? Verse 2, behold, I've heard that there's grain for sale in Egypt. There you go saying that word again. Egypt, Egypt, Egypt. Go down and buy grain for us there. Then we live and not die. And if you look at verse 3, you notice 10 of Joseph's brothers went down to buy grain in Egypt. Notice how these men are described. They're described as Joseph's brothers. I don't think that's incidental, by the way. They could have been called sons of Jacob or sons of Israel. They will be here in the next verse, or verse 5, rather. But here in verse 3, it's 10 of Joseph's brothers. It's the 10 brothers that conspired first to kill Joseph and then later recanted of that conspiracy, choosing instead to sell him to Ishmaelites and to slavery. Now in verse 4, Jacob, we're told he did not send Benjamin, Joseph's brother, with his brothers, for he feared that harm might happen to him. Here we see that family favoritism again, that ugly family favoritism that we've seen through all of this. And the comment that I'm about to make, I, I don't want to be misunderstood here. I don't want you to think that I'm in any way condoning family favoritism. I'm not. But in Jacob's defense, would you send Benjamin with this cast of characters? I, 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 no. Um, no. Then verse 5, thus the sons of Israel came to buy among the others, notice there's others. There, you know, the the there's a there's a train of people that are going down uh, to Egypt. I I would submit to you if you you continue to study this, it won't be long before you your heart will swell up with exaltation for Joseph. Why? Where are all of these people headed? They're headed to see Joseph. Isn't that amazing? All these people are being drawn to Joseph. And then here he is in verse 6. Now Joseph was governor over the land. He was the one who sold to all of the people of the land. 
And Joseph's brothers came and bowed themselves before him with their faces to the ground. Now, verse 7, I think, sometimes throws us a curveball. Here Joseph saw his brothers and he recognized them, but he treated them like strangers. Have you ever scratched your head about that? Why is he doing this? He treated them like strangers and he spoke roughly to them. Where do you come from, he said. They answered from the land of Canaan to buy food. Notice verse 8, Joseph recognized his brothers. Notice the repetition. The Holy Spirit does not have a stuttering problem. Not have a stuttering problem. Whenever we find these things, they're being emphasized, aren't they? What's being emphasized is the fact that Joseph recognizes them. He recognizes them, but they do not recognize him. And in verse 9, Joseph remembered the dreams that he had dreamed of them. What dreams? You remember back in Genesis 37 where Joseph has these dreams. And the first dream was they were in a field and they were binding sheaves, right? And Joseph's sheaf stood upright and all the other sheaves bowed down to it. Now, did Joseph, like Pharaoh, did, did Joseph and his brothers need to call a council of, uh, of uh, dream interpreters to get this one? No, they got it. And they weren't very happy about it, were they? Now, they understood it. Joseph is telling this dream that I'm going to be exalted and you're all going to bow down to me. Then he has another dream where the sun, the moon, the 11 stars are all bowing to him. He shares this one with his father. His father's disturbed about it. It kind of mildly rebukes him. But we're told that his father, Jacob, pondered these things in his heart. And it kind of reminds you of Mary in the New Testament pondering the things of Jesus in her heart, doesn't it? He pondered these things in his heart. But look at verse 6. In verse 6, Joseph's brothers came and bowed themselves before him with their faces down. Isn't that amazing? Verse 9, Joseph remembers his dreams, and he said to them, you are spies. You have come to see the nakedness of the land. Now, where does he get that from? You ever wonder that too? Why is he accusing them of being spies? I don't really know the answer, but there's one scholar that has suggested this, and I share it with you, and I'm going to share it with you as long as you understand. This is speculation, but I think it's a, a good educated speculation, is that perhaps Joseph's brothers accused Joseph of being a spy. When Jacob sent Joseph out to see the check on the welfare of his brothers, he goes out and the, this particular scholar says that when he arrives, what do the brothers say to him? Again, this is reading between the lines. Scripture doesn't tell us this. This is speculative. But what do they think? They think Joseph has come to spy on them. Now, why would they think that? Because in Genesis 37, we learn that Joseph would bring bad reports of his brothers back to his father. So what are you doing here? You come here to spy on us. I share this with you because I think, well, maybe that could be possible. Again, we can't say, thus saith the Lord on this, but I think, it, why is he accusing them of being spies? Perhaps it's because they accused him of being a spy. You're spies. You have come to see the nakedness of the land. Notice in verse 10, 
They say, no, no, my Lord, your servants have come to buy food. We're all sons of one man. We're honest men. Your servants have never been spies. Now, of course, they're being honest in the respect that they've never been spies. But would you call this cast of characters honest men? No, no. And notice what Joseph does the second time. He says to them, no, it's the nakedness of the land you've come to see. Now, here we can say, thus saith the Lord. This accusation of being spies, Joseph continues to press upon them. And what is Joseph doing by continuing to press this upon them? He's getting information out of them, isn't he? He's learning a lot about how, they have, uh, how they've been doing for all of these years. He says, no, no, verse 12, it's the nakedness of the land that you've come to see. And they said, we, your servants, are 12 brothers the sons of one man in the land of Canaan. And behold, the youngest is this day with our father, and one is no more. Joseph said to them, verse 14, Now you're spies. By this you shall be tested by the life of Pharaoh. You shall not go from this place unless your youngest brother comes here. you imagine the gulp? Unless your youngest brother comes here? Okay, who wants to go back and, and pitch that one off, Dad? We've got to bring Benjamin. What? Verse 16, send one of you and let him bring your brother while you remain confined that your words may be tested whether there is truth in you or else by the life of Pharaoh, surely you are spies. Now let's stop right there. Why is Joseph doing this? Why is he doing this? I'll give you four reasons and these aren't in any particular order. Uh, but one is Joseph wants to know how Benjamin is doing, and he wants to see Benjamin. Two, he wants to know how his father is doing, and he wants to see his father. Uh, three is he is concerned about leading his brothers to repentance. Four, the Lord's in it. And I could just give you one answer. The Lord's in it. The Lord's in it. There isn't no human being this this wise, this smart. Uh, obviously, the Lord is in it. If, if Joseph would have simply said, hey, man, I'm good to see you guys. I mean, it's, how you been? Well, who are you? Well, I'm Joseph. I'm your brother. And they would have been like, whoa, you got some gig going on here, man. Oh, that's great. I see things have fared well for you. And they could have had this little pot well, and they could have just forgot about everything that was going on, and everybody could have went their own way. And they could have acted like nothing ever happened. That's not what happens. Look at verse 17. He put them all together in custody for three days. Well, now who's in the pit? They're in the pit. It's a time of isolation. Time of isolation. Now they've got time to think about things. Actually, Joseph has time to think about things too. Verse 18, on the third day, Joseph said to them, do this and you will live for I fear God. Don't skip over that too fast. Look at this, verse 18. Joseph says to them, now who is Joseph? Now let's, we, we know who Joseph is as readers. But let's get down into the text as the brothers. To the brothers, Joseph is the second most powerful man in the world and the only one with grain. And he's an Egyptian. 
And he says, do this and you will live, for I fear God. Now, who are the brothers? The brothers are the people of God. Let's not forget that. These are circumcised men who are children of Abraham. They are in covenant with God. In fact, they are occupants, they are recipients of the covenant of grace. If we don't understand this, we're going to miss verse 18. And as we miss verse 18, we're going to miss a lot of what comes on after that. Here are these men. By virtue of their circumcision, they've been brought into the covenant of grace. And here they are. We haven't heard them even utter a word about God up to this point. And here are these guys standing here before this Egyptian. Now, Egypt is often used, even in Revelation 11, which we just, we just read. Remember, Sodom was pitched right with Egypt. Egypt is often used as emblematic of sin in the Scriptures. It's the place of sin. It's like Babylon. And here is this Babylonian leader or this Egyptian leader saying to the covenant people of God, I fear God. Now, what would that do to you? Whoa, wait a second. We're supposed to be the guys fearing God and we're supposed to be leading him to fear God. But he fears God and we don't fear God. See, they don't know who he is. And that sets you up for verse 19. If you're honest men, let one of your brothers remain confined where you are in custody and let the rest go and carry grain for the famine of your household. Here suddenly they're in front of somebody that seems to know their deepest, darkest secret. Kind of reminds you of something, doesn't it? That's the way it is with God, is it not? He knows all of our secrets. Okay, if you're honest men, let one of you remain. Let the rest go and carry grain for famine of your households. Verse 20, bring your youngest brother to me, so your words will be verified and you shall not die. And look at the end of verse 20. And they did so. Better believe they did so. They didn't do so because they wanted to. But notice verse 21. Then they said to one another, in truth, hear that word truth? Doesn't that sound a bit odd coming from this bunch? We haven't heard them talk like that before, have we? In truth, we're guilty. We haven't heard them say that either, have we? We're, we're guilty concerning our brother. And that we saw the distress of his soul when he begged us and we did not listen. That's why we don't say the word Egypt. Because the very last thing that we saw our brother do as he was being loaded into the Ishmaelite caravan was cry. 
We saw his face, his petrified face. We saw his pleas. We saw, we saw him crying out for mercy. And at the time, we were very angry. At the time, we were full of rage and we didn't care. But then after we spent the money, now we can't get that image out of our hearts as much as we try to bury it. We're guilty. In truth, we're, we're really guilty. Reuben chimes in in verse 22. He says, did I not tell you not to sin against the boy, but you did not listen? So now there comes a reckoning for, the, for his blood. There comes a reckoning for his blood. Now, what, what are they saying? They're saying in very, the end of verse 21, this is why this distress has come upon us. Not only are they starting to confess that they're guilty, they're also starting to confess that they deserve this punishment. Isn't that interesting? Now, in verse 23, they didn't know that Joseph understood them. There was an interpreter between them. They didn't know Joseph could understand their Hebrew dialect. Just like when we're in our sins and carrying on, we don't know that God can hear everything we say. They don't know Joseph can hear everything. Verse 24, Joseph can't take any more of this. He turns away from them and he weeps. He weeps. I wonder, you can't even begin to wonder what emotions Joseph is experiencing, but I wonder if some of those tears aren't tears of joy as he's listening to his brothers finally fess up and own their sin. Then we're told that he took Simeon from them and he bound him before their eyes. And Joseph gave orders to fill their bags with grain, to replace every man's money in his sack and to give them provisions for the journey that was done for them. Notice the grace, though Joseph is speaking roughly with them, notice the grace in verse 25. He gives them provisions for the journey. That's beyond what uh, Joseph is a prime minister of Egypt is um, called to do, isn't it? He's speaking roughly to them in love is what he's doing. Verse 26, they load their donkeys, they depart. Verse 27, somewhere along the line, one of them opens his sack to give his donkey fodder. And once he makes a discovery, his money is actually in his, in his sack. Uh-oh. Uh-oh. I think this is maybe one of those Roscoe and Enos moments, though. I said I wasn't going to bring that up again, but I think, we, I think this is one of those moments. I'll tell you why. Isn't it curious that the other brothers don't open their sacks to see what's in theirs? Wouldn't you want to do that? I mean, like if one of the brothers opened up and there's money, wouldn't you want to, like, open your sack up? They don't do that, do they? Their hearts fail them. Well, why? Well, because it looks like they're thieves, doesn't it? They've been accused of being spies. They have a brother back in custody. They're not getting him out until they bring Benjamin down. And now they've got, they've got the money. Notice what they say. What is this that God has done to us? These are a group of guys that aren't in the habit of mentioning God at all. But now all of a sudden, 
They're seeing their distress, and they're starting to actually see their distress in the proper light, aren't they? In fact, really, their eyes are are beginning to open a little bit, and they're actually starting to see the world in its proper way. Well, in verse 29, they come to their father in the land of Canaan. They tell him everything that happened. Hey, how would you like to be Jacob? You never know what you're going to get when this crew comes back, do you? The man, the Lord of the land, spoke roughly to us, verse 30, took us to be spies. We said to him, we're honest men. We've never been spies. We're 12 brothers, sons of our father. One is no more. The youngest is this day with our father in the land of Canaan. Then the Lord of the land said to us, by this I shall know that you're honest men. Leave one of your brothers with me and take grain for the famine of your households and go your way. Bring your youngest brother to me. Then I shall know that you're not spies, but honest men, and I will deliver your brother to you. You shall trade in the land. I don't know which one of them brought that up. Um, That had to have been pretty hard. Verse 35, they finally opened their sacks, and what happens? Everyone has their money. And when they and their father saw their bundles of money, they were afraid. Then Jacob, he says, you've bereaved me of my children. Joseph is no more. Simeon is no more. Now you would take Benjamin. Reuben chimes in, and you know, it's kind of interesting. In one respect, notice verse 37. Reuben chimes in, and I mean, his, his proposal is absurd. It's absolutely absurd. But let's overlook that for a moment, because I think within the absurdity of this, there is a deep desire to go get Simeon and not just forget about him. He says to his father, kill my two sons if I don't bring him back to you, but put him in my hands and I will bring him back to you. Now, it's absurd because how could Jacob, like, how could he find any consolation if he had first, in losing Benjamin, how's he going to find any consolation in killing his grandsons? It's just, it's just, I think, I think Reuben is just speaking out. Um, he's trying to comfort his father. He's trying to tell his father how determined he would be to bring, to bring Jacob back. But at this point, it's a no-go. Jacob says, my son shall not, go, shall not go down with you, for his brother is dead and he's the only one left. Notice he says the only one left. Why is he saying he's the only one left? Because it's Jacob. Jacob loved Rachel. It's who he loved. Worked seven years for her hand. He was duped. He ended up married to Leah. Uh, Leah bears him, you know, six sons, you know. Um, And you you remember how the story goes. But finally, he has sons to Rachel, the woman that he loves, Joseph, and then Benjamin. And how does Rachel die? Rachel dies giving birth to Benjamin. And that's what we're hearing here. But in the process of hearing this here, You know, this explains some of the dysfunction, much of the dysfunction that's going on in this family. You just love these two. That's all you love. You don't love us. You just love these two. The the amazing thing here is that we've been with Joseph through really the crucible, haven't we? We've We've been with him through the fires of all this adversity. 
We've been with Joseph, you know, as he has gone down to Egypt and sold into slavery. We've been with Joseph as he's been with Potiphar. We've been with Joseph then as he was uh, jailed for something he didn't do. Then we've been with Joseph as he's been exalted, and now he's with Pharaoh. And really, for all this time, Joseph has had one thing, and one thing only, and that is the Lord. And that's what he's been on about, is the Lord. And he has grown by leaps and bounds. He's not the 17-year-old who's going to run and tell his brothers about a dream that he had. Not at this point. He doesn't even disclose his identity to his brothers. You see how much he's changed? He's not that kid that's going, hey, I had a dream, man. We would do shes. My shes went up. Your shes went down. I had this uh, sun, moon, and stars. Eleven stars bowed to me. He's not doing that. He doesn't even disclose his identity to them. He has changed so radically. But what about the brothers? And the family. Prior to this chapter, they've been changing too. But it's been a spiral down, hasn't it? You know, when I was doing ministry out at the, club, out at the jail, I used to say this. I didn't say this every, every, every time I was out there, but I say this often, especially as I saw new folks coming in. You know, you would, you would see some of the same folks for a while and then you know, some of them were some of them were were um, were awaiting sentencing and were going off to penitentiary, and that's that's where they they had them until their sentencing date. Others were doing their whole time out there. There was a whole all kinds of different circumstances. So sometimes I would see the same folks for six months. A lot of times, though, I'd see folks for three, four weeks, or uh, or three or four times rather, and then they'd be gone. But as I noticed more and more new faces, as I noticed new faces that. The, the, the buzzer would sound, that solenoid would, you know, and the door would open. you hear that echo through the whole place. And they'd, the, the men would come carrying their chairs in, and they'd set their chairs down. And the women, the same, would come carrying their chairs in and set their chairs down. Now, these were different isolated populations. I had to do a service for each one of them. They didn't mix the men and the boys, or the men and the, the girls. But um, I would say this to them as they would walk in, they would set their chairs down. And to grab their attention, I would just look at all of them and I'd say, listen, I want to tell you something. You are about to change. You will not be the same when you pick those chairs up and you go back out that door as you was when you came in here. And they, well, I had their attention. They'd want to know why I would say that. I would say, I'm about to preach the gospel to you and I'm going to tell you something about the gospel. There is no neutrality under the gospel. You are either going to come closer to the Lord than the next 35 minutes or half hour, or you're going to go further away. But you will not come in the same. And you will not, or you will not leave the way you came in. And there's truth to that, isn't there? There's truth to that. One of the things I love about pastoring Tri-State Community Church is you guys are here for really one reason. I mean, you're not here because we have that f any fancy programs. I don't, if, if we've got some fancy programs, nobody told me about them because I don't know about them. I think I'd have a little bit of an idea about them. I, I don't think we have any fancy programs. And n nobody's going to win any Steeler tickets. Um... Some of you will know what I'm talking about. Some of you won't. But we don't have... 
I don't, I don't have any Steelers tickets to give you. Why are you here? You're here because of the Word of God. You're here because you want to draw closer to the Lord, right? That's why you're here. Joseph has changed so much over these last... Does anybody have any idea how many years it's been since Joseph has seen his brothers at this point? Anybody have any idea? At this point, it's been about 22 years. It's about 22 years. We know that from information we get from the next chap couple chapters. It's about 22 years. Joseph has been growing for the last 22 years, and his family and its dysfunction has been spiraling down. But this family, again, we have to hold on to the context here. Who is this family? Is this a family of Canaanites? Is this a family of Egyptian? Egyptians? Who is this family? Who are these ten brothers? Reuben, Simeon, Levi, Judah, all born to Leah, right? We have, we have Dan and Naphtali, born to Bilhah. We have Gad and Asher, born to Zilpah, right? And then we have uh, Zebulun, or Issachar and Zebulun which is born to Leah. Who are all these guys? They are the patriarchs of the 12 tribes of Israel. And it's important you understand that these are covenant people who have been walking in unbelief. Make that distinction in your mind. Being brought into the covenant is not the same thing as being brought into a state of grace. Because there are people who are in covenant with God. In fact, everyone is in covenant with God. You're either in a covenant of works or you're in a covenant of grace, but everyone's in covenant with God. But make the distinction that there are people who are in the covenant who are not believers. These folks have been walking for the last 22 years. Do you, would, you, would anyone want to call any of these guys believers at this point? But the Lord is working on changing that. And what does the Lord have to do to change that? He has to work in their lives in such a way that they own their sin. In other words, the Lord speaks roughly with them. You know, sometimes I have a note here that sometimes the Lord treats His children roughly. He's treating them roughly. And sometimes the Lord isolates us. Notice that He doesn't just speak roughly to them, but He puts them in the pit for three days. And Simeon goes in the pit for a good while. It's probably about 250 miles between where they're getting this grain and back to where they live. It's about a 250-mile journey. Probably took three or four weeks to do, is what scholars tell us. So Simeon's going to be there for a while. But they were all in the pit for three days, isolated, isolated. Why is God going to isolate them? Why is He going to isolate them? Because you know what? When you're running around with guilty feelings, one of, the, one of the ways to deal with it is to get busy. It makes it easier, doesn't it? 
to deal with guilt. Just get busy. What is God doing? He's isolating them. So all that they, they have to, they just, all they can do is sit and think. And sometimes God will do that to us too. Sometimes the, I, I can speak from personal experience. I won't get into my personal story, but I can tell you sometimes the Lord will bring tragedy into your life. And that's how he gets your, uh, he gets your attention as he brings tragedy into your life. But other times, he'll bring unemployment into your life. That's how he'll get your attention and isolate you. You're too busy for me? Okay, I can change that anytime. We'll just have us a little famine. I mean, that's the modern equivalent of a famine. No work, no work, no money, no money, no food. No food, famine. Sometimes you'll bring illness into our lives or an injury. Or maybe not even to our lives, or into someone who is in our, you know, to a loved one. Now, I don't want to give you the impression that, like, when you leave here and say, okay, well, such and such is sick, so they must have sinned against God. No, 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 no. I'm not teaching that. The disciples believe that. In fact, at one point, they come across the man who was born blind, and they even say to Jesus, who, who you know, the Lord, who, who sinned? Him, this man, or his parents, that he was born this way? And Jesus answers, says, well, neither. And someone will say, well, how do I know the difference? Oh, it's easy to know the difference. Because when the Lord's isolating you and giving you time to think, you're going to find yourself like these ten men. What's on their minds? This distress. Why does this distress come upon us? It's because of that thing we don't talk about. Has your conduct been out of step with the gospel? Is there unrepentant sin in your life? These are questions that we should ask ourselves. I, uh, I'll just close with just a couple of thoughts here. Guilt, and I thought about sharing this as an introduction. I think it would have made a nice introduction, but I wanted to take, I wanted to discover this together this morning, but Guilt is like an unspeakable word today, is it not? I mean, is guilt a popular word today? Do we say guilt? Do you hear people talk about guilt? Um, sure, if someone has committed a crime, we find them guilty, they're guilty, then they should be punished. But in terms of ourselves, do we think of ourselves as guilty as a society? Do we think of the things we do as sins? No, we think of them as mistakes. We think of them as slipping up. Uh, we're trying to rid guilt out of our uh, out of our thinking. We'll explain it away. We justify it away, or we store it away as far as we possibly can. We take it and we bury it. And actually, we can bury it to such a degree that we can, you know, kind of go on with life act almost as if it never happened. But then, once in a while, someone comes along and says the word Egypt. And when they say the word Egypt, well, guess what? It brings it all back up healing can never happen like that. The hospitals are full of people who have been tortured with this for many years. Now, some of your medical professionals, you know what I'm saying is true. We can't find healing this way. We can't find healing this way. You know, a young woman has an abortion, you know, 25, 30 years ago, and she explains it away. She justifies it away. She stows it away. But then every time she hears the word abortion, 
what happens? It comes back. Can't find healing like that. We can't find healing like that. The only way to find healing is to face our guilt, to own our guilt, and to repent of our guilt. And the interesting thing about these ten men is they now are facing their guilt, aren't they? They're owning their guilt. What do I mean by owning it? Okay, it's ours. We are really guilty. We did this. This distress has been brought on us by God. We deserve this. You see, this is such an act of grace. It's a painful act of tremendous grace. Because if you've ever been brought to this place, you know how painful it is. But you also know how gracious it is. And it's so gracious. This is the reason it's so gracious. It's so gracious is because now for the first time, you're ready to hear about a Savior. You ain't never been ready to hear about a Savior until now. And now you're ready. And I'm all ears here. What do I do with the fact that I am guilty and I deserve this? And then Jesus says to us, he says to us, dear guilty sinner, hand me your burden that I may suffer its consequences for you. Now, healing takes place. Heavenly Father, now we must step away and weep with Joseph. As these things touch our hearts, Father, our hearts are filled with joy. Those nail-pierced hands have loved us so much that he willingly took the sins that we deserve, the guilt and the punishment for the sins that we have committed. Oh, Father, we thank you. Oh, Father, we praise you. Oh, Lord, if there's anyone here this morning, Father, who's never really truly owned their sin, who never truly has come to the place where, you know, I'm, I'm guilty and I deserve this, Oh, Father, meet them here, we pray. Meet them here, oh, Father, with your grace. Let them see the beautiful offer of salvation in Christ Jesus. Oh, Father, as we go forth from this place, Lord, fill our hearts with these things, that we may publish these things. And may we be mindful that, Lord, you tarried for 22 years to bring these men to this place. And many of the people that we talk to, it may be 22 years before you bring them to own their own sin and to face it and to repent of it and find healing in Christ Jesus. So help us, O oh Father, not to be discouraged, but fill us, O oh Father, with these things. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.